0: Father in heaven, thank you so much for uh, life and breath, for your mercy this morning, for the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death, and his resurrection for us. Father, we thank you for the hope that that gives us, and we thank you that as we study your word, in particular, we study the book of Revelation, uh, that it does give us hope upon hope, that as we know the end of the story and what awaits us, we pray that it would completely uh, transform the way that we live today we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, go ahead and get a Bible out. We're gonna start in Revelation 20. We will end in Revelation 21. So that should tell you we have a lot of ground to cover this morning. Uh, get your handout out. That's got all the scripture that we will be looking at uh, printed there. Uh, you know, believe it or not, this is the second to last meeting this semester. So next semester will be our final meeting for the fall, which also means we are coming to the end of the book of Revelation. Next week, Chad will close with Revelation chapter 22. And I don't know about you guys, but I feel like I could uh, be studying this book next semester too, right? Uh, We didn't even scratch the surface. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, all good things must come to an end. Maybe we'll do this again sometime. But next week, Chad will close out the book of Revelation and give us a little taste of what we will be doing in the spring. So be here next week so you can find out what that will be. Um, This is what I want to do as we begin. Uh, As our study comes to an end, you know, as if the book of Revelation has not been difficult enough. Uh, I would probably argue that Revelation chapter 20 is the most difficult chapter in the book of Revelation and perhaps one of the most difficult chapters in the whole of the New Testament. Alright, we're not going to figure it out in 30 minutes. But what I wanted to do is give you a very brief overview of why that is, why people have difficulty of this, and I've given you a handout that you can take home with you uh, if you'd like to read more about some of the issues. And the issues really center around one thing, or at least one concept, one idea, and that's the issue of the millennium, the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. And what we're actually gonna see here in a little bit is that it's not just the millennial reign of Christ, it's the millennial reign of the saints with Christ. The question is, how are we supposed to think about a 1,000 years, and how are we supposed to think about the order in which the events happen, in, in, in essence, It's the end of the world, the end times. How do we think about the end? How are we supposed to interpret Revelation's teaching on the end, the order in which the end will happen? Uh, Most people, as they study this, one of their uh, hopes is to kind of find what are the clues, right? We've talked a little bit about interpreting Revelation as a whole, uh, that it's, it's possible that you'd miss the whole point by trying to interpret some of these symbols for things that they could be or not be. Um, that There'll be a little bit of that this morning. So here's, here's the point, all of it really centers around um, really the idea of the millennium. Let me show you where that is first introduced. Revelation 20, Revelation 20, beginning verse one, that's not on your handout. We'll pick up in a second, verse four. But John says, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven and if you remember, right, The the whole point of Revelation is a series of visions given from these angels, one after another, and he's seeing uh, one thing after another. One of the questions that we have and won't solve today is think of those visions as being historically sequential. In other words, everything that John sees is the history and the order of events, or are they just a series of visions? And they're sequential, not uh, historically, uh, chronologically, but they're sequential uh, thematically. Those are two options. Again, we're not going to solve that this morning, but you need to know those are two options. to Think about this. Here is the angel, John says, coming down from heaven. He's holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil, Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. All right, so everyone agrees what we see here is God binds Satan, chains him up, locks him up for a period of a thousand years. That is known as the millennium, the millennial reign of Christ. Verse 3, he threw him in the pit, shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. All right, so everybody's in agreement. There is this thing known as the thousand years. What is agree- is What happens during those thousand years is Satan is bound. He is locked up. He's put away so he cannot torment the earth in the way that he has been. And during that time, Christ is going to reign along with the church, and there's going to be unprecedented blessing in the church as they are able to reign without Satan's tormenting for a period of a thousand years. Now, what's the big debate? (laughs) Why do people get in such a huge fight over all of this? Well, the question is, when did that happen? When does this happen? Does Christ return and then uh, the millennium happens? One option. Does the millennium happen and then Christ returns? Or is the millennium something that is completely figurative, a symbol? As you know, numbers have been very important to the book of Revelation. We've looked at the idea of seven, the idea of ten, right? The idea of even three. All of these numbers being symbolic, important for us to recognize the number, even the number of six, right? So perhaps a thousand is the same way. Perhaps a thousand is meant not to be literal but figurative. All right. So let me give you very really quickly an overview of the options, and that'll show you why it's easy to get lost in the weeds, and show you what the real message of really the book of Revelation, perhaps we'd even say the gospel itself, but certainly the real message of Revelation 20 and 21, okay? So how would we interpret these 1,000 years? Uh, There are basically four basic camps. They're in your handout. I'm going to highlight them very briefly. If you want to know more, you can read more. It's a very fair, I think, article about all four. Uh, Very fair, very unbiased, although he gives you his view uh, and then actually is a great call at the end and the conclusion that says there is something we can learn from all of them, and I think that is true. There's something we can learn from all of them. So the first would be this. It's historic pre What that means is that Christ returned before, before the millennial reign. Before the millennial reign. That that's when he will return. Historic uh, pre-millennialism will teach that at the end of this age, there's going to be a great persecution, a great tribulation, that things will get worse before they get better, uh, that the church will experience persecution like never before, and then at that point, Christ will come. Christ will return. And when he returns, he will bind Satan up. He will establish his reign on earth, which will last a thousand years, At the end of the millennium, Satan will be released and he will be crushed and defeated once and for all. He'll be crushed and defeated once and for all. God will then judge all people according to their sin. And we'll talk about that in a second, what that's going to look like. And then all things will be restored. Historic premillennialism. All right. Now, who has held to that view? Well, it is called historic because it dates all the way back to the second century. Uh, We see evidence of its teaching by Irenaeus, Justin Martyr, all right, both uh, teachers, uh, theologians, church fathers in the second century. But most recently, we've seen this even held by a Presbyterian pastor, James Montgomery Boyce, uh, popularized by George Eldon Ladd, if you've ever heard of any of them. Just gives you an idea of who might hold to that. The second position is also a form of premillennialism. Hard to say that four times fast, right? Uh, Again, we're talking about Christ returning before the thousand-year reign. This would be known as dispensational premillennialism. And according to dispensationalism, the current church age will end with the rapture of the church. So dispensationalists will hold that before the tribulation comes, Believers will be caught up together with God in a rapture. uh, And then the tribulation will happen. And after a period of seven-year tribulation, that will end with Armageddon and Christ will destroy, uh, Christ will return and establish his 1,000-year reign. Uh, This was originated in the 19th century, the Brethren movement. Uh, You know of it, or you may have heard of some of these things because they've been most popularized by Schofield, the Schofield Bible. Anyone have a Schofield Bible? So he taught this and is in the notes of his study Bible. Uh, It was uh, taught by Louis Sperry Schaefer. Anyone know who that is? He founded the great Dallas Theological Seminary. So right here in our city. And taught by uh, many professors there, Charles Ryrie, Dwight Pentecost. And then if you've ever read any of the Tim LaHaye books or seen one of the greatest movies of all time, Left Behind, starring Nicolas Cage. Um, (laughs) you will have seen at least this view popularized. I'm a huge Nicolas Cage fan. He is one of the fi- All right, that's not fair. I'm sorry. That's, that's not even, I don't know what's gotten into me this morning. All right, postmillennialism. Postmillennialism would teach that the 1,000 years that uh, uh, Revelation 20 speaks about occur prior to the second coming of Christ, okay? So these 1,000 years of prosperity for the church will happen before Christ returns, Some might see this, uh, who are uh, post-millennial, might see this as a literal thousand years. Others see this thousand uh, a bit more figurative. Uh, This view is widely held by the Puritans. Uh, It was certainly dominant among uh, many Reformed theologians in the 18th century, 19th century, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Hodge, B.B. Warfield, uh, just to name a few. Uh, Lastly, amillennialism, ah meaning none. Many amillennialists don't like that term because they do believe in a reign, just that that reign has been fulfilled. Uh, They see the thousand years as as symbolic and that really what we're talking about when we talk about the millennium represents the entire age of the church of Jesus Christ from Jesus' advent at Christmas all the way to his second coming that that's what it represents. And that has been taught uh, by as early as uh, forms of this by Augustine, uh, Geherde, Louis Burkhoff, Anthony Hocuma, uh, Sam Storms, Kim Roggebogger, Cornelius Venema, just to name a few. Okay. How many of have ever heard of any of those before? That's what I thought, so I thought we need to talk about. How many never have? You're probably at a, a, a more advantage this morning in a lot of ways. And that's why I say that. It's not to say that these viewpoints aren't important. It's not that it's not uh, completely uh, beneficial, perhaps, to study this, maybe to decide uh, where you come down. If you wanna know where I come down this morning, uh, I'm not gonna tell you. Uh, Especially for the purpose of me teaching this morning. I won't tell you. I will tell you that I actually oscillate between two of them. (laughs) And I kinda go back and forth, uh, depending on how I'm feeling, I guess. Uh, The point is this. It's easy, though, to get lost in the weeds of how we interpret this and miss the whole point. So wherever you come down, I want that to inform a much larger vision of what John is trying to communicate to the church through this revelation, really what God is trying to communicate to the church through John's revelation. And that's this, that God is going to restore all things. That's the message Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through his Son, God will restore all things. And if you get too caught up in how you interpret this or what your viewpoint is, you might miss the whole point. God will restore all things. We call God just, we say that God is a God of justice. What I want you to understand this morning is that when we say that God is just, that he's a God of justice, it doesn't just mean that he knows right from wrong. Many children can tell you what's right from wrong. It's not just that he looks at our sin and looks at all that's happened in the world and looks at the persecution of the church and says that is wrong. No, it's that God tells right from wrong, and then this is what he does. He makes the wrongs right. His justice, his justice is restorative. Let me say that again. His justice is restorative. God is in the business, through his Son, of making wrongs right again. Our wrongs, the wrongs of our sin, the wrongs of the fall, the wrongs of a broken and fallen world. God will restore all things. We're going to see this very quickly in four ways, and then I'll send you to your tables. The first that we are going to see in Revelation 20 and 21 is that God will vindicate the persecuted church. God will vindicate the persecuted church. It's been a theme in the book of Revelation. It is at the forefront here. God will deliver justice, again, making wrongs right again, for the persecuted church. Second, God will defeat Satan once and for all. We've talked about Satan. We've talked about his defeat. We see here in Revelation 20, the ultimate, final defeat of Satan. Third, God will judge all sin. And again, in that justice of sin, he'll make wrongs right. And then fourth, we will see in Revelation 21 that he will make all things new. All things. He will make all things new. And those four ways we're going to see that God will restore all things. He will make all of the wrongs right again. And that's the message. It's the message of the end of Revelation. It's the message of the end times. It's the message of the gospel itself. All right, so the first way we're going to see this, God will vindicate the persecuted church. We're going to pick up the story. uh, Revelation 20, verse 4. So after he has seen this vision of Satan being bound for a thousand years, John says he saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge were committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped for its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. All right, so we're told a little bit more about this thousand-year reign. We know that Satan is bound up for a thousand years. During that time, Christ reigns, but more importantly, it's not just Christ. It's the saints along with Christ. And John mentions these saints, the church, in a series of identifying markers. And the first is this. Those who are persecuted unto death. Martyrs. Those who literally lost their heads, who were beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus Christ. Martyrs. He says, "Those who have been beheaded, also who have been beheaded for the word of God, those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, nor received its mark on their foreheads, are their hands." So, yes, I think you could argue that John's view here is all of the church, all those who believe in Jesus Christ, all those who have not worshipped the beast, all those who have bound to the true King of Kings and Lord of Lords, not bound down to uh, the rulers of the age. Uh, The satanic forces at work, the principality and powers among us, right? All all those, but specifically, it's the persecuted church. The persecuted church. Now, I think for us, in our day and age, as 21st century Americans, the idea of persecution is quite foreign to us, isn't it? I think we're going to be honest. And I think if you've read, especially recently, the kind of persecution that uh, Christians are enduring all over the world, compare that to what we experience here today. Perhaps you've read uh, maybe the Book of Martyrs um, and you've read some of the stories just throughout history. You'd recognize that the idea of persecution is a bit of a foreign concept to us. So we need to orient ourselves. Well, what is it? And I think uh, we've studied this before. So we'll look at it again. The Sermon on the Mount, I think, can help us. The Sermon on the Mount helps us. Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs are the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. All right, what does that teach us? What can Jesus teach us about persecution? Well, the first thing I could say is this. He promises that you will be persecuted. The Bible promises that the church will be persecuted. It's one of the great questions that we will see, actually, in the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter 4. The persecuted church in Peter's day wondering, listen, we're Christians now. Why are we being persecuted? Shouldn't this be easier? And what does Peter say? Do not be surprised at the fiery trouble that's coming upon you, but rejoice. Rejoice if you are suffering on account of Christ. Here, Jesus is saying rejoice. Rejoice. Rejoice in your persecution. That's the first thing. We know that there will be persecution. Revelation is going to tell us. There will be. No one disagrees that there's going to be a tribulation, a persecution. The question is when. There will be a great persecution of the church. The second thing is this, persecution is not about us, it's about Jesus. If you think that you are being persecuted because you are picking fights and debates and being antagonistic and puffing yourself up and thinking that you were right, that's not persecution, that's pride. No, persecution is about Jesus. In other words, if you are being, as Jesus said, persecuted on account of him, because of your testimony about him, because of the way that you live and speak the gospel, well, that is persecution. Persecution is not about us, it's about Jesus. In the same way, in other words, that they persecuted Jesus unto death on a cross, we also will be persecuted. So the question is, have you ever been persecuted? Have you ever experienced that? Uh, You know, maybe not physically. Uh, Could be. I have a story about that, doing mission work in Morocco. Um, some, some of you may have experienced that kind of physical persecution. Or well, maybe it's social. Maybe it's social persecution. There are many different forms. Have you ever experienced that truly? In particular, have you ever experienced that in the city of Dallas? It's a question I want you to wrestle with at your tables. And the question I want you to wrestle with is why or why not? And what does it mean to be persecuted without necessarily trying to go pick a fight? Right? The last thing I want you to do is leave here and be like, great, Paul said to go get persecuted. <laughs> and so let's go do this. But I also want you to wrestle with what does authentic Christianity look like? Authentic witness. And what would it look like, particularly for us in a city like Dallas, to be willing to be socially persecuted because of our faith? To lose social capital, maybe even financial capital because of our faith. What does persecution look like for you? We're told that those who are persecuted, especially the martyrs, will be vindicated. Verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. A great example of two verses that I could talk about for about an hour. And we have about two minutes in order to get to all we need to cover. Uh, So, listen, uh, Revelation mentions a first and second death and a first and second resurrection. Excuse me. Now that you are already confused, you're even more confused. First and second death, first and second resurrection. What are we to do with all of that? Many different views. I'll give you uh, the one that I think is the most convincing. And it really is going to concern just these two verses. What is mentioned here, the first resurrection and the second death. The first resurrection, uh, I believe what Revelation is teaching, is a spiritual one. A spiritual resurrection, the second being a bodily resurrection. The first death being a spiritual one. Uh, the second death being death unto heaven. Well, first death being, sorry, now I'm being really confusing. First death being a physical one, second death being death into hell. Okay? A spiritual death. John is connecting, so they cross over. John is connecting the first resurrection to the second death. In other words, he's saying, blessed is the one who has had a spiritual resurrection in Jesus Christ because you have been redeemed from the pit of hell. That is what he's saying. Been given in Christ Jesus a new hope in the resurrection of jesus christ you have been redeemed and you saint can taste that now even before christ returns in the first resurrection that spiritual resurrection you can know that you have been redeemed even from the last things of all damnation to hell Uh, we see this romans 6 verse 5 we've been united with jesus in a death like his we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin would be brought to nothing. For we have died with Christ, we believe we also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God and Jesus Christ. That's the first resurrection. If you believe in Jesus Christ... You have been raised with Christ, Paul says. That's what Revelation is talking about, the first resurrection. You have been spiritually raised. You have given victory over sin and over hell itself. And as we'll see in a second, you you can know that your name has been written in the book of life. Okay? All right. That's the first resurrection. Second, we know that God will defeat Satan once and for all. All right, so first, we know that uh, we will be vindicated. Second, Satan will be defeated once and for all. Just real quickly, verse 7, a thousand years end. Everybody agrees on that. Satan's going to be released from prison. Everybody agrees about that. And Satan will come out to deceive the nations from the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. Many would see this as really a repetition of the last battle that we've already seen in Revelation 16, 17, 18. Uh, You read Gog and Magog, if you're like me, you immediately think of Ghostbusters. Think of that. And Gozer the Gozerian. Anyone else, a huge Ghostbusters fan? It's a great movie. I'm actually serious about this one, it really is a great movie. I've got, what are they talking about, Gog and Magog? He is, again, referencing Old Testament prophecy, the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 38 and 39. Gog and Magog, representative of all of the evil of uh, satanic nations, nations that have bowed down to, rather than God, bowed down to themselves and bowed down even to Satan himself. Uh, so all of these nations are going to be gathered together. There's going to be one last final battle verse 9. We're told that in this battle they marched up over the broad plain of the earth, surrounded by the camp of the saints of the beloved city. Fire came down out of heaven and consumed them. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they were tormented day and night forever and ever. Again, we're seeing this as another angle, another view of that last and final battle. But in this view, in this angle, we're not told just about the defeat of Babylon, the defeat of all the earthly kingdoms, not even just the defeat of the beast or the false prophet, but we're told about the defeat, the ultimate, final defeat of Satan himself. This is where we see that once and for all, Satan will be crushed. He will be defeated once and for all. Finally, this is the end. In the end, Satan will be no more. One of the questions I want you to ask yourselves and then ask each other at your table is how does that change the way that you live today? Knowing that Satan will be ultimately crushed once and for all forever, thrown in, John says, into the lake of fire forever. What hope, what victory does that give you in the battle today? Because though we know that the war is going to end, the battle rages on today, doesn't it? And we must be as vigilant as ever. But this gives us great hope. What hope is that? All right, third, God will judge all sin. Look with me, verse 11. God will judge all sin. Then John says he sees a great white throne, and him who is seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away. No place was found for them, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were opened, and then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. They were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in to the lake of fire. Okay, all right. what do we do here? Well, we see a picture, a vision of judgment. This is what we call judgment day, what becomes popularized as judgment day, the final judgment, where God will judge the living and the dead, right, that finds its way into many of our creeds. So here God is, he's judging, uh, we're told, the living and the dead, he's judging the dead according to what? what they have done, according to these books, right? Records kept of everything that you have ever done, everything that you've not done. Did you know that you will be judged? Sometimes that gets lost on us as Christians. We think, well, forgiveness means you begin with given a free pass. <laughs> no, you will be judged. The only difference for you is that all those who are in Christ Jesus have their names written in another book, not a book of sin, but a book of life. And in that book of life are written the names of the church, God's elect, his people, all those whom he has redeemed through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Not by anything that you have done, not by works that you could boast, but only by his grace, only by his mercy. Can you know that your name is written in the book of life? Yes, you can. How? by knowing that you are one of his sheep. This is John, John's gospel, John 10. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew tells us that when he comes again, he will separate the sheep from the goats. Are you a sheep or are you a goat? How do you know? How do you know if you are a sheep written in the name of the book of life? Do you know the voice of Jesus Christ? Do you know his voice speaking over you saying, it is finished. I have paid it all for you. Have you trusted in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? If so, you have heard the voice of Jesus You know that he is your shepherd and you are his sheep. There is nothing that can snatch you out of his hand. Your name is written in the book of life and you will be saved forever and ever and ever. Amen. 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 In the final judgment, remember, justice does not mean just judging wrong. It's making wrongs right. Yes, he will judge sin and all those will be judged according to their deeds. But part of his justice is to justify us, to justify you and me through the death and resurrection of his son Jesus Christ. Last thing, I'll send you to your tables. God will make all things new. God will make all things new. This is my favorite passage in the Bible. I know I say that a lot, <laughs> so you don't believe me anymore. Uh, but this is one of my favorite passages. Uh, this is my call to worship at every wedding that I officiate. Because this gives a view of what weddings are all about in the first place. They're nothing more than a shadow, a rehearsal, a picture of a greater wedding that is to come. That's what Chad taught on last week. And here's what we're told. That John now sees, Revelation 21 verse one, a new heaven and a new earth. So what has happened so far? Remember, we're told that Satan has been bound for a thousand years, right? that the the persecuted church will be vindicated, right? We're told that uh, God will judge everyone according to their deeds. He will defeat Satan once and for all. He will uh, rescue those whose names are written in the book of life. And now we're told that he will make all things new, a new heaven, a new earth, John sees, The first heaven, the first earth passed away. The sea was no more. I told my wife, Jenny, last night that I've never noticed that before, that the sea will pass away. She was actually very distraught about that. We love the beach in my family. Um, The sea will pass away. Why? Remember, the sea is a place of chaos, right? A place of uh, tormenting, a place of danger, destruction. So I gave her a little bit of hope while determining how um, literal you take this. Maybe it's more figurative. Maybe it just has to do with that. (laughs) Or maybe it's not. (laughs) Uh, The sea was no more. And I saw, John says, the holy city. A new city. That new city compared to the city of Babylon, right? The city of man. This is the city of God. The church itself. New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. And what does it look like? prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Do you see it? God is making all things new. How? He has dressed us white. White, just like a bride on our wedding day. Not because we're pure. But we've been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We've been given his robe. Ra- we've been made pure. We've been made white. We've been prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Who is our husband? It is the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. The bridegroom speaks in verse three, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. This is the promise of the Bible. God's covenant with his people goes all the way back to God's covenant with Abraham. I will be your God and they will be my people. Repeated over and over again. The book of Jeremiah and the new covenant. Here in the last, in the end, the last things. Fulfilled once and for all. I will dwell with you forever. I will be your God. You will be my people. Verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. There will be no mourning, no crying, nor pain in me. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. What is he making new? All things. Every sin, every effect of the fall, cancer, disease, despair, depression, addiction, every idol, That you are entangled with, you will be set freed from. No more mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. He is going to make all things new. So this morning I ask you Are you suffering? Are you aware that you are still a sinner this side of heaven? Do you recognize that we live in a fallen and broken world? Brothers, it will all be made new. He will restore all things. It will be just as it was before the fall. He will bring us back to the garden itself. And what is more, he ends with this. Write this down. Write it down. For it's trustworthy and true. You can believe it. So the question I want you to wrestle with now as you go to our tables is, how does this change your life? We don't know when this is going to happen. Many have tried to figure out when in many ways that sometimes is the motivation to figure out the order of interpretation, to try to figure out what are the clues, how can we know when Christ will return? Jesus himself said what? I don't know. (laughs) The Father does, but I don't know. You can't know what Jesus doesn't. But what you can know is this, he will return. He will return, and when he does, he will restore all things. He will make all things new. Do you really believe that? And if you do, How does that completely transform the way that you live today? Causing you not to just let go and say, well, God's gonna return, but how does it actually cause you to be more vigilant than ever? In other words, to say, along with the early church, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, let's get to work because Christ is going to return and there is a lot to do, a lot to do for his church before he comes again. Let me pray for you, Send you to your tables. Father, thank you so much for your great word. Uh, thank you, um, I thank you that it is sometimes difficult for us to truly understand who you are. I pray that that would not fill us with discouragement or frustration. I pray that it would fill us with a great sense of awe and wonder. That as we read and talk about these things this morning, We would not um, shake our heads in confusion, but we would shake our heads in awe. That we would leave this place as we go to our work, uh, filled with worship. Knowing that one day you will return. And that your thoughts are higher than our thoughts, your ways are greater than our ways. But as we try to discern what you have revealed to us through your servant John, I pray God that you would give us a greater vision of you, a greater vision of the gospel, and a great hope and the restoration of all things. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.